So I am a movie buff. Like, I love movies. One of the things that Mindy and I enjoy doing is going to movies. Uh, We probably spend too much time in our free time watching movies. And I will also admit that I tend to like movies that are a little bit darker. Like, I don't like sentimental movies. I don't like movies that are, you know, just kind of sticky sweet. And, and sorry if this offends anybody, it's why I don't like a lot of Christian movies. Because they tend to be a little bit too sentimental. Uh, they, they tend to want to try to rub all the, the edge and darkness off of life. All of the, the difficulty and the pain. So, so give me the dark stuff. Give me the stuff that's going to feed my melancholy mood and make me sort of brood and just sit and think and ponder about all the pain and suffering in life. I know I'm, I'm kind of twisted. I will admit that. You guys are helping me, thankfully. And when we turn to Mark 14 in the gospel, we see that the mood and the story in the narrative has taken a dark turn. There is an ominous tone hanging over the text. Death is casting an ever-increasing shadow. If there was any uh, mistake that this was going to end in a, in a sort of happy, uh, everything works out, sunny, breezy, this is going to be a piece of cake, Jesus is going to ride into victory, and everything's going to be awesome. If there's any expectation of that, Mark chapter 14 blows up that expectation completely. The momentum of events begins picking up pace and racing towards a seemingly inevitable conclusion. We're seeing the full brunt of human frailty and fear and greed and pride and rebellion and wickedness coming after Jesus. So we first see this in the rejection by the religious leaders. Their their rejection, which we've seen through the entire gospel, has now taken a murderous turn. This is what we read. It was now two days before the Passover in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So instead of just challenging and doubting and questioning and trying to discredit Jesus, now they want to kill him. They're no longer just content to try to oppose him or silence him. They want him dead. They want him out of the picture. And and really their rejection here and and their murderous intent is is the full fruition of what we've seen through the entire gospel. This is their hearts unhindered. This is the the logical end of what they've been doing the entire time. Like their rejection and rebellion leading to murder should not be surprising because this is the natural conclusion for all who will oppose Jesus. Jesus. Like, we shouldn't think it's strange when our culture and our world try to scrub any remainder of Christianity from it. But we shouldn't think it's strange when people oppose us for our faith. Now, look, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom and, and, and just sort of like, hey, watch out, everybody's after you and create this sense of suspicion. But, but we should not be surprised. They came after Jesus. We should not be surprised that there's opposition Because Jesus doesn't leave us with any other option. Here's what I mean. Jesus consistently confronts people with his authority. Jesus makes claims that demand a response. Like C.S. Lewis was wise when he pointed out, look, if you want to just try to reduce Jesus to a good moral teacher or some religious leader, he doesn't give you that option. 
Jesus makes demands. He, he makes claims like, sell everything and follow me. Give up everything and follow me. Like Jesus is either a world-class narcissist or he is God. Jesus makes demands on things like our time and our money, on our marriages, on our parenting, on our identities, on our purpose, on our sexuality. He makes demands on every square inch of our lives. And if you're one that likes to grab authority for yourself, if you're one that likes to live by your own rules and set your own agendas, then Jesus is going to frustrate you. Jesus is going to anger you. And so you're left with the option, well, if Jesus won't leave me alone because he is relentless, Jesus doesn't just back away, then what do you do with that? What do you do with such authority? What do you do with such claims? And that's one of the questions the Gospel of Mark consistently reminds us and consistently haunts us with. What are you going to do with the power and authority and message of Jesus? What will you do when his message and authority and power confront your kingdom and your agenda? See, Jesus' kingdom is advancing. Will we follow him? Will we submit to his authority? Or will we try, like those before, to get rid of him? Will the pride and rebellion of the religious leaders mirror our own pride and rebellion? Now, don't let sort of historical distance give you the benefit of the doubt. You might think, well, I would never really try to kill Jesus. I would just ignore him and walk away. That's more the benefit of history than it is the condition of your heart. So Jesus faces the rejection, the murderous rejection by the religious leaders. But the rejection becomes even worse and goes even further. The picture gets even bleaker. Not only are those who have always opposed Jesus trying to kill him, now one close to him, one of his disciples, is set on betraying him. We read this, Then Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Look, it's one thing for your enemies to go after you. It's one thing for your enemies to seek to destroy you, but to have a friend, a a disciple, one you have spent countless hours investing in, you've spent countless hours with, who has seen you in, in all of sort of the stages of life and has seen you behind the scenes, who knows you better than anyone. So someone who has poured time and energy and resources, poured out their very soul into you that you may flourish and to have that person turn and betray you. There's a particular kind of pain. There's something particularly destructive about betrayal. How how many of you are familiar with the name Robert Hansen? A few people. Okay, some of you military folks familiar with the name. How about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg? Maybe a few more of you. Aldrich Ames? Benedict Arnold? Okay, most of you should raise your hand for that. Guy Fox, Marcus Brutus, okay? Names that we remember in history. Can you tell me anything else about these people other than they, were, they betrayed somebody? See, history is relentless. There, there is something particularly powerful and destructive about betrayal that no matter what else in your life you do, history remembers you, oh, that's the guy who betrayed so-and-so. That's the person who is treacherous. And why is this? Why does history not let us 
forget treachery because the consequences of betrayal are devastating. That the consequences of treachery are devastating. They're history changing. Like stories of rejection and betrayal, they're shot through with pain and despair and even death. And they provoke in us suspicion and paranoia and self-protection and fear. We don't forget these things because they hurt deeply. And there, there, there is a particular pain and destruction that come from rejection and betrayal. It's no wonder that Dante in his great poem, The Inferno, conceived the deepest level of hell reserved for traitors. How many of you have ever felt the pain of betrayal? You, you know what I mean here. There is something particularly painful something particularly wounding and damaging. There's something about betrayal and treachery that feels like it's impossible to be redeemed. What good could ever come from this? How, how could this pain and this wound ever be healed? And really, it's into that dynamic Jesus has thrown. One of his 12 betrays him. There's a particular pain that Jesus is facing. And why does Judas betray Jesus? Well, Mark records for us it was for money. He, he did it for money. But, but let's get inside that for a moment. What is at the heart of the greed of Judas? Well, what is, what is really at the heart of greed in general? It's the desire to possess something that will give us status and power. It's the desire to have something that will give me what I want. And so more money and more possessions, the more I have of those things, you know, the stronger I am. The greater status I have, the more comfort and security I have. And what's betrayed in the heart of Judas is he was following Jesus for what he could get. Like he was riding the Jesus gravy train, so to speak, because he thought, hey, here's, here's the Messiah. Here's this guy that's going to overthrow Rome. Here's this guy that's going to stick it to the religious leaders and he's going to set up and become the, the, the most powerful man in Israel and I want to be close to that because I can be somebody. And the moment that seems to be going south, he bails. The moment it, it is clear that Jesus has no intention of setting up an empire on earth and a kingdom on earth, he's like, well, I'm going to make the most out of this and I'm going to get what I can out of this and so I'm going to betray him. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to get paid for my time. So he betrays Jesus. I mean, just think of the magnitude of this. He, he has seen Jesus heal the sick, cast out demons, raise people from the dead, or at least hear, people, hear about it. He, he has seen Jesus teach. He has been close to Jesus for three years, and yet he betrays him for money. The disappointment of recognizing he wasn't going to get what he thought he was going to get caused him to turn his back on Christ. And lest we judge, and lest we think that we're any different, how often, how often do we use God? How often are we going to follow Jesus as long as we get what we want? Like, Jesus, as long as everything goes well, like, as long as 
I have the marriage that I want, as long as my kids behave, as long as I have good financial security and I get the job, as long as everything that I desire happens. And, and okay, minimal suffering, because I know that's just part of life, but let's, let's keep that minimal. As long as everything goes well for me, I'll follow you. But the moment my agenda gets upset, the moment something happens that I don't like, the moment pain and suffering come crashing in too far, I'm out. This isn't what I signed up for. I'm not getting out of this what I thought I would get. We betray that our hearts are selfish and prideful, just like Judas. We betray that we're in this for ourselves. We betray that we want Jesus to be about our agenda and our kingdom, and when he's not, we bail. We're out. We move on to something else. We move on to someone else that we think will get, give us what we were looking for. And so Judas holds up a mirror to our own hearts. He shows us what's deep down inside. But the rejection goes even further. Jesus is betrayed by Judas, yes. And Judas was one of the 12. He was a disciple and he was a friend. But later, Jesus is denied by Peter, who was one of the three, one of the closest, the inner circle, besties. If he were living today, this is the guy that Jesus would be taking selfies with all the time, right? Peter was as close to Jesus as anyone on earth. And this is what we read about Peter while Jesus is on trial. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Aha, Peter, you are so confident at one time. You stood there and you said, Jesus, everybody else may abandon you, but I won't. I will die for you, Jesus. I will die with you. And yet here is Peter running in fear, not from the high priest, not from the council, not from the scribes, from a servant girl, the least intimidating person possible, since Peter running in fear, since, since, since Peter denying his Lord, denying his best friend. Well, what's underneath this? Why does Peter deny? Fear for sure. He is afraid of being marked as a disciple. Uh, He's being afraid of being connected to this shameful criminal who's being put on trial and condemned to death. Who wants to be identified with such a disgraceful person? Who wants to be identified with someone who who has such insults thrown at him? Who, Who wants to be discredited as following a common criminal? Who, Who wants to be associated with someone whose reputation will kill your reputation or get you killed altogether. 
So there's fear here. But let's dig, dig a little deeper. Like Peter's declaration of confidence that came earlier was prideful and self-sufficient. It was a prideful declaration of strength that was coming out of his own capacity. It wasn't grounded in trusting God, but trusting self. And that is always a recipe for failure. Like when the limits of Peter's courage were exhausted, he bailed. When the limits of Peter's faith were confronted with an extreme trial and suffering, he bails. And so for us, again, Peter, is, is, he's holding up a mirror to us. How often do, do you feel this sort of fear? How often do, do the pressures of, of culture and, and the things that are said about people who follow the Bible and follow Jesus, how often to, does that cause you to want to pull back? Now, you might not outright deny Jesus in front of people, but do you play it so close to the vest that no one has any idea that you follow Christ? Like, I mean, this, this I think, is the bigger question for us. Are we playing things so close and so safe because we don't want to be labeled as a bigot? We don't want to be labeled as judgmental. We don't want to be labeled as ignorant and hateful. We don't want to be identified with all of those people. And so we will play things so close and so safe, no one has any idea that we really believe in Christ. Now, calling yourself a Christian, especially in in Bellevue, Nebraska, in our context, doesn't really get you much persecution and suffering if you sort of keep it at a certain level. Like as long as you're the nice Christian, as long as you're just, that, that means, hey, I'm a nice person who treats everybody well. But if that means you start talking about sin and the need to repent and the need to find salvation in Christ, if that means that you're going to walk with a particular ethic and, and as you talk with people, call them to a particular ethic, that could get you in trouble. That, that, that could cause you to be labeled and identified in ways. But let's be honest, we just don't want to be labeled. Like, like it's hurtful. It's harmful. It, 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 we feel that. And so we play things close to the vest. But also, our self-sufficiency will almost always have us functionally walking away from Christ. Here's what I mean. Like following Jesus isn't easy. And when it is too hard and when the trial is too much or when the ask that Jesus holds out in front of us becomes too difficult, if we look inside as a way to respond, here's what's going to happen. One of two things. One, we'll look inside and go, nope, can't do it. Too much, too big, I'm out. Or we'll have one of these moments. Yes, Jesus, I'm with you. I got this. I'm going to do this, Jesus. I will die for you, anything for you, Jesus. But we do it in our own strength. And when we tap out our faith, when we tap out our courage, when we tap out our strength, we recognize, whoa, this is way too much. And then we bail. We stop. We decide no. And then what ends up happening is this. God, how could you ask that of me? That's too much. Why would you ask that from me? All the while, we've been depending on ourselves. And so we will start to question God and his goodness. We will start to get angry and resentful that God would ever call us to those things. Or we will walk around with guilt and think, man, I'm a terrible Christian and Jesus wants nothing to do with me. 
We will beat ourselves up with our failure and think that God has just shelved us. And so there's an angst in our soul that either way will cause us to put distance between ourselves and the Lord and we will functionally deny him in the way that we live. And so Peter's denial, Peter's self-sufficiency, Peter's fear holds up a mirror to our own heart. But I wonder, which of these mirrors most reflects your heart? Is it the pride and rebellion and rejection of the religious leaders? Are you stiff-arming the authority of Christ? Or maybe it is the prideful, selfish, self-centered betrayal of Jesus or Judas. I'm not getting what I want from this. Or is it the fearful, self-sufficient denial of Peter? To some degree, we've thrown all of these things at Jesus. <laughs> to some degree, we are all guilty of these things. But that's not where the story ends here. There's an even deeper rejection that takes place one that is far more painful than even being rejected by the religious leaders, betrayed by Judas, or denied by Peter. And we see how intensely Jesus feels this impending rejection as he prays in the garden. This is what we read. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What has Jesus so troubled and so sorrowful? What has Jesus in such an emotionally intense place that we read in the other gospel accounts, he's actually sweating drops of blood. Well, well, some would say it's it's the impending death that he's about to face, like that he knows he's about ready to suffer and and die in one of the most horrible and painful ways you can can die. And, And that's probably part of it. But there's something more going on. There's something deeper, something more sorrowful that Jesus is knows is coming. It isn't the physical suffering. It isn't the physical pain that has him asking that this cup pass from him. It's the impending rejection from his father. As we noted earlier, we understand that the greater or deeper the relationship, the greater the pain of rejection we feel. The closer you are to someone, the more that betrayal hurts, the more that rejection hurts. Here's what pastor and author Tim Keller, how how he describes this. There may be no greater inner agony than the loss of a relationship we desperately want. If a mild acquaintance turns on you, condemns you, and criticizes you, and says she never wants to see you again, it is painful. If someone you are dating does the same thing, it is qualitatively more painful. But if your spouse does this to you, or if one of your parents does this to you when you're still a child, the psychological damage is infinitely worse. We cannot fathom, however, what it would be like to lose not just spousal love or parental love that has lasted several years, but the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. Catch this. Like, while we must never fail to recognize the immense physical pain Jesus endured on our behalf, the deeper agony, the deeper pain, the deeper suffering took place on a spiritual and relational level. 
because the wrath and judgment and separation that you and I deserve because of our sin was going to be placed on Jesus. The wrath that you and I deserve because of our sin was going to be poured out onto Jesus for you and me. Jesus is going to be rejected in our place. The Father that he has known eternal closeness and love and perfect intimacy with for eternity is going to turn his back on Jesus and reject him. In their book, When God Weeps, Joni Erickson Tata and Steve Estes vividly depict not only the physical pain Jesus experiences, but the pain of rejection he experiences for us. So I want to read, this is an extended quote, and the words will be on the screen, but I want you to just to, to try to just really get into the moment and, and, and listen to what's happening here as they, they sort of flesh out all that is happening when Jesus is on the cross. The face that Moses had begged to see was, for, was forbidden to see was slapped bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion now twisted around his brow. On your back with you, One raises a mallet to sink the spike. But the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has this power on his own. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only by the sun do all things hold together. The victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants the warrior's continued existence the man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm. The sensations it would be capable of, the design proves flawless. The nerves perform exquisitely. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe. But these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being. The living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. His father, he must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane and roars against the shiveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so. Never felt even the least of his hot breath. But the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, Why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. Oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned. Who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name? Have you ever held a razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk. You, 
who molest young boys, peddle killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents? Who gave you the boldest to rig elections, ferment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, robbing innocents, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relishing each morsel and bragging about it. I hate, loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. The father watches as his heart's treasure, the mere image of himself, sinks drowning into raw, liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, will not, reach down or reply. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. And you know what the beautiful thing about this is? He does it willingly. In the face of rejection by the religious leaders, in the face of the pain of being betrayed by Judas, in the pain of having his best friend Peter deny him, and in the immeasurable pain of having his father turn his back on him, Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus willingly goes to the cross so that you and I can know what it means to be forgiven. Jesus willingly takes on all of the sin, all of the wickedness, all of the evil that you and I have committed, that this entire world through centuries and centuries and centuries has ever committed on himself, willingly, so that you and I could be forgiven. See, friends, this is the good news of the gospel, that through his rejection, you and I can be accepted. That through his betrayal, you and I can be blessed. You see, Jesus was rejected so that you and I could know God as Father and be accepted into the family. See, Jesus was betrayed by his friends so that you and I can be welcomed in and loved and be blessed beyond anything we could ever hope for. This is the power of the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is how the gospel shines even through this darkest of chapters, even through the darkness of betrayal and rejection and pain. The gospel holds out hope for us. Look, Jesus isn't just a martyr who dies for a cause. Jesus is the savior who atones for our sin and defeats evil and wickedness because this isn't the end of the story. Because as we're gonna celebrate next week, Jesus rises from the dead. God pulls him out of the grave, pulls him out of that sin and that wickedness that covered him and declares righteous, declares not guilty, declares your, the payment that you, that you paid for 
sin completes. That's why Jesus on the cross says it is finished. And so in this darkest of chapter, see that the hope that is held out for us, see the love that Jesus has for us, because here's Jesus's heart for you. It's invitation. Though you and I reject and betray and deny, even in this passage, we see the heart of Jesus. Invitation. Jesus sits with his disciples at a meal before his death. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Like Jesus sits with his enemies. Jesus sits with his betrayers and his deniers. And he says, yeah, I know what you're going to do. I know you're going to betray me and deny me, but I still willingly give my body and shed my blood for you. I still willingly give myself and give my life for you. And guess what? Someday I'm going to come back and we're going to do this again. I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem you. And one day I'm going to put an end to all the evil and all the suffering and all the pain and all the sickness. And we're going to celebrate this meal once again together. Jesus invites you and I, his betrayers, his deniers, those who reject him, to come to his table, to come to know him, to to come and have fellowship with him, to come and be transformed by his life. This is the hope of the gospel for us. This is the beauty of the gospel for us. For all of you who reject Jesus, for all of you who betray Jesus, for all of you who deny Jesus, oh, come and feast with him. Come and be forgiven by him. Come and be transformed by him. Come and have his life flow through you and be renewed and restored. Ah, lay down your pride and rebellion. Lay down trying to chase after the empty promises of this world. Lay down trying to grab an identity for yourself. Lay down trying to live this life in your own strength and be self-sufficient. Lay down your guilt. Lay down your shame. And come and be renewed by Christ. Come and experience the love that he has for you and the fellowship that he holds out for you. Like like those of you that have experienced the deepest pains of betrayal. Like Jesus holds out his hand and says, you know what? I know what that's like. Come. Come and find comfort in me. Come and be renewed and restored in me. Come and, and don't live your life on your own. Don't try to heal your own wounds. Come and be renewed and restored in me. Jesus holds that out for you this morning. And, and so I wonder, will we continue to reject? Will we continue to, to betray? Will we continue to deny? Or will we be like the woman who comes to Jesus with this most expensive bottle of perfume and just breaks it open and anoints his head. Like her most valuable possession, something worth years worth of wages. And she just lays it at Jesus' feet. You know why? Because she sees something beautiful and profound in the death of Jesus. She sees something holy. 
She, she sees something that the disciples don't. And she says, it is worth just pouring my entire life out. It is worth bringing everything that I have and everything that I own and just laying that at Jesus and making him beautiful, making him worthy, worshiping him, giving him my life. So church, I want to encourage you. In one of the darkest passages in scripture, to see the beauty and the light and let that cause you to draw near. Let that cause you to run to Jesus. Let that cause you to worship Jesus. Let that to cause you to give your all and give your life and let go of any hindrance, anything that you're holding on tight to and saying, yes, Jesus, you're worth it. This is beautiful. This is profound. This is amazing. And I know I'm going to blow it. I know I'm a mess. I know I don't have everything together, but all my chips in with you, Jesus. I'm trusting you. I'm trusting your grace. That's what Jesus accomplishes for us in his rejection. Wonderful life. And he invites you to the table. Will you come?